Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. You know, um, this month, February, is Black History Month. And I remember the day when I was in school, um, there was almost no black history. One of the reasons I didn't like history was all they talked about was dates and people. And there were no black people in our history. But this day, we have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard on the phone with us this morning. She has a, she's a professor of community justice and social economic development at the John Jay School in New York. And she's written a book called Collective Carriage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practices. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. Yes. How are you doing? Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy Great New Year to, to you. you. <laughs> Happy New Year to you. Thank you so very much for taking time to be on the program with us. This is perhaps your third time in the four I and a half so. years we've been yeah. on the program. And Thanks I, for having me. I keep learning from you. I just keep learning from you. And today... You know, we're celebrating this month the African-Americans in a time of war. Okay. Okay. And so I was just wondering, uh, probably going back to... No, before we go there, just for people that have not heard you before, when did you start your book? How long did it take you? How much research did you do? And I already know the answer to this, but I want everybody <laughs> out there. And, and what was it like? I mean, what did people tell you when you first started to write your book? Do the research right. For so... I first started this research probably like in 1998, maybe a little earlier than that. I wrote my first article. I published my first article about this topic, Black Cooperative History, in 1999, I guess. And I started out because I was very interested in community economic development and urban redevelopment that was community-friendly, family-friendly, uh, supportive of keeping people in place and anti-displacement, that kind of thing. And I realized that the co-op business model, the co-op ownership model, was actually a strategy that fit all those criteria, mm -hmm. in addition to being a very democratic strategy. So I started going to co-op conferences, but there were very few black people there. I only really saw black people when the conferences were in the South and the Federation of Southern Cooperatives was involved. But otherwise... And so I kept asking people, and nobody could tell me what the black legacy was in the co-op movement or that people knew very little about even existing black co-ops. And then when I went to talk to black communities about alternative community development strategies, the black folks couldn't tell me about a co-op history either. They kept saying, oh, co-ops aren't for black folks. Other people use them, but not black people. Hippies. So, white hippie people use them. Nobody yep. uses them. Okay. <laughs> so none of those answers were satisfactory to me. So I started to do my own research. And luckily, I actually had a couple of things in my hip pocket that I didn't realize until I started looking into this. One, I actually grew up in an intentional cooperative community myself and had been a member of a food co-op and things like that. So I actually knew more about co-ops than I thought I did. Mm -hmm. And two, one of my um, graduate school buddies had actually written about Du Bois's economic theory, which is basically a theory of group economics and co-op economics. So I actually went to him. I read his dissertation. I talked to him. He and I wrote an article together. So he's the one who really said, this is the stuff you should start reading. Here's where we have a tradition. Du Bois has done some of this research already, so you don't have to start from total scratch. And then um, I slowly, it's what's called the snowball method. So I started with those that information. I then, when I realized that Du Bois had such a strong history, even though nobody knew about his cooperative economics work, I realized that he had been the editor of the Crisis magazine for the NAACP for 30 years, around the same time that he had been writing in his autobiography and some other places that he was 
interested in co-op economics and thought it would really be the savior for black people. So I said, well, he must have done something in the crisis magazine about co-ops. And I luckily at that time had a research assistant. This would have been the early 2000s. A research assistant who went through every single issue of the crisis magazine mm. for 30 years and found me seven articles specifically about cooperatives and black co-ops um, and an editorial that Du Bois had written. So W.E.B. So, du Bois was... Uh, yes. 1868. Co-founder of NAACP and also one of our black intellectual heroes. 1868 and died in 1963 at age 95. Yeah. Lived a very long life, yeah. Wow. So that's where it all started. So it really, I've been saying it was about 15 years of research, another three or four years of writing, rewriting, editing, finding a publisher, all that kind of stuff. So it turned out to be, you know, basically a, a long, almost generation-long <laughs> project. I'm actually still learning. I probably have a second book somewhere if I could slow down and get it done. Um, but there's still, every day I still pretty much learn more stuff about either the history or some current issues for co-ops and African Americans. So it's, and I learn new strategies and I get new ideas and I start venturing into new spaces. So it's basically a lifelong project for me at this point, I guess. So you were told co-ops are not for black folk. There's no history in it. We don't do that thing. And yep. then when you got into it, you just found a wealth of knowledge, and one book has come out of it, and you're looking for a second one in Collective yes. Carriage. And okay. writing. I've been writing articles about it. Um, yeah, and basically what I found was a continuous history for African Americans. So from, you know, 1600s when we first were forcibly brought to North America to today, there's a continuous history of somewhere Black folk have been doing, uh, been engaged in cooperative economics, owned co-ops, started co-ops, talked about co-op strategy, that kind of thing. There's periods when there was a lot more activity, like the 1880s, 1930s and 40s, the 1960s and 70s, but there's no one period or one year or one decade where there wasn't something happening with blacks and co-ops. Okay, so... You got all of this wealth of knowledge and folks are using this cooperative model. And when I found out about it, I got turned on for the same reasons you did when you were talking about community economics, uh, helping people create wealth, social and financial wealth. Um, and I really liked the the, the uh, quote that I heard that co-ops help people come out of poverty with dignity. Right, yeah. And, and I love that quote from Dame Pauline Green. Mm -hmm. So, so um where does this all lead to? And one of the things I'm, I've always toyed with, uh, Dr. Nimhart, is why this history isn't known and why co-ops haven't been able to come forth and stay in the forefront of economic uh, growth and stability. Right. So I have a couple of theories about this. The very first thing is that the United States is probably the most backward country in the world in terms of cooperative economics and support for co-ops and the co-op sector. Almost every other, especially every other developed country and almost every other country in the world has used, has supported, has been interested in co-op development. And um, some places uh, it's like a third of their sector and they have federal uh, data about it, that kind of thing. We have no federal data. We have a project now that's trying. That's a private university project that's trying to keep knowledge about all the co-ops in the United States. But we don't have any federal support. The state laws are all different, so we don't have uniform laws either. So depending, some states you can't form a co-op at all. Some states you can only form a credit union or an ag co-op. So we have very little infrastructure and policy and ideological support for it. Second of all, because we're such a strong capitalist country and because of the McCarthy era in the 50s, people don't talk about co-ops. They just do it because if they talk about it, it puts them in the limelight, especially black folks being blacklisted, being uh, denied loans and things like that is more serious than for anybody else. So even when they do engage in these things, they tend to do it quietly. And so, and so it's a weird kind of thing. Even 
family members don't always think of it as a co-op. Like when I started speaking around the country and talking about it, you know, people would, at the beginning and the first questions were all about, oh, no, this doesn't exist, this doesn't exist. But by the time I ended, people would come up to me at the end and say, oh, you know what, now that I understand what you're talking about, my grandparents were involved in a co-op. My aunt and uncle started a co-op, you know, and Mm -hmm. so suddenly... They don't have the terminology, but once you explain to them the principles and the process, then they suddenly realize there is things even in their own family that connect and that, right? But we don't have the words. We don't, right? So, and especially with red baiting, I think that's been huge. I think also because it's not mainstream in the United States, a lot of blacks really want to be in the mainstream. So they really think of black capitalism, small business ownership. They don't think of alternative solidarity economics because it's not taught in schools, it's not encouraged anywhere, there's not loan funds for it. I mean, now we have a little bit. But so there's lack of education, lack of infrastructure, lack of financial support, lack of of knowledge. And then finally for African Americans, and this may be true for other people of color, but I haven't studied it, we actually suffered from white supremacist terrorism against our co-ops. And so that's another reason why we had to do it often very clandestine, why you didn't really talk about it in public and hardly even talk to your children about it, because it was so dangerous. People got lynched, killed, jailed, the businesses got undermined, sabotaged, et cetera, because um, white supremacists didn't want blacks to use this strategy. Well, they didn't want us to have ownership and financial wealth. They, if right. they kept us under their thumb, then they had exactly. control, and that's where they this this whole tax reform thing that that the Republicans have gotten through. They talk about it's a major wealth switch uh, from from poor to rich, right? Yep. Bigger than the slavery, and that At was the point, last yep. time they went back yep. to this wealth switch from the poor to. So it's all about money mm-hmm. uh, this, and this, power and control. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, co-ops are one of the best economic structures for democratizing and widening power and control, and some people don't want that, right? Yeah, they don't want us to have financial wealth. And that's – but, see, I don't think it's just blacks. I just think that – Yeah, I've just done the research on blacks. That's what I was saying. I suspect it's probably for a lot of subaltern groups, but I've only been able to do the research on blacks, yeah. Well, I made the theory that – the wealthy really want to keep the poor down. It doesn't make mm-hmm. any difference what color they are because they're only interested in the color of money, so they, right. they can keep us but, down. But they use race as a dividing point to help keep us all down. Yep. So yep. that because of race, they don't the white poor are, uh, don't respect or trust the black poor, and so they try to do stuff separately, and they still have these visions that they can be Horatio Alger and make it out, yep. so they align. We got to take white wealthy. We we have to take our first break. We'll come back and talk more about poverty. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. We have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart on the phone with us this morning, just giving us a lot of information. You know, right before we took the break, you were saying that the two reasons that co-ops don't function so well is because the U.S. is backwards as it relates to cooperatives. The, the, right. the um, what's that? return on investment for stockholders is the main sort of engine for our economic growth. And if you don't right. have capital, then it's going to be hard to get into that game. Mm-hmm. And the second one is the McCarthy area, which era, which was uh, communism. And so blacks... Anti, an anti-communism program, right? Yeah, anti-communism, right. That, that was the focus. And too often co-ops were considered communists or socialists. or Right. Something, something. And um, blacks did not want to be involved with that. And therefore, a lot of a lot of people got hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my sense is that the wealthy really don't want everyday people to know about co-ops because that's the way they can, we can get from under their thumb, come out right. of poverty with dignity. But coming out of poverty is the secret. But what is red baiting? Right. Can you, t- what did, you mentioned that term, red baiting. Oh, red baiting. So that's from the McCarthy era. That's where 
you charge people with being communists or socialists as if they're traitors and horrible people, and you pretty much undermine their credibility and any of their economic efforts. So you take away their job, get them fired. Um, you know, don't banks won't hire them. You smear their good name and reputation. Some of them were actually uh, indicted, um, but many lost jobs for you know a decade. Uh, couldn't work, wouldn't be hired by anybody. Um, and so because of that, especially in the black community, because the consequences of being smeared like that were so strong, um, people didn't even want to, you know, they didn't want to hear the name co-op. They didn't want to be involved in any co-op. They didn't want to sign up to join a co-op. Um, and that, you know, even though the McCarthy era finally ended, what, in the late 50s maybe, mm -hmm. um, that legacy, again, of being scared, afraid, being smeared, um, we even have some, you know, black leaders who have said that to co-op groups, that for a long time we really just focused on civil rights because it was safer, uh, even though focusing on civil rights was not that safe. You know, people like Fannie Lou Hamer got horribly beaten and almost died because exercising their right to vote. But still they were saying it was safer to focus on civil rights than it was to look at economic justice and co-ops and economic rights. Wow. Now, the, the theme for the study of African-American life and history mm -hmm. is African-Americans in a time of war. Right. So what have you found out about, you mentioned the times when co-ops have really flourished in the right. 1880s, 1930s, and 40s, 1960s, and 70s. Yep. But how, how have co-ops functioned, like, like during the Civil War, after the Civil War, and during the wars. Right. So definitely, again, sometimes more informally than formally, blacks turn to co-op ownership to survive and to thrive, right? So Civil War period, if you think about it, for, for the U.S., the Civil War was in addition to, you know, two regions fighting each other fiercely uh, and huge amounts of death, especially... Um, white death at first because blacks weren't even allowed to be in the Union Army at first. But there's also all this upheaval, right? As Union Army is coming through the South and liberating areas, taking over plantations, blacks are suddenly free, even though they're not legally free yet, but they're suddenly free. So we find that there's two really main things that blacks are doing as they're getting free. One is they're trying to find their family members because the slave system, especially by the 1850s, was moving, separating families wildly because the, the bulk of the slave system was moving to the lower deep south for the cotton industry. So people were being, families were being separated, people were being sold from Maryland, Virginia, over to Texas, Louisiana, like that. So the first thing people were doing were actually trying to find their families. The second thing they were doing was trying to figure out how to survive economically. And so they were informally forming sort of co-ops, taking over abandoned plantations, uh, trying to buy up a little bit of land and, and farm together, that kind of thing. So we did have early forms of cooperative agriculture and other kinds of co-ops going on. They had been going on as mutual aid societies before the Civil War, but we definitely have this kind of activity during the turmoil of the Civil War. And then right after the Civil War, we actually have blacks trying to formalize um, co-ops. It's also, by the 1880s, we've got formal notion of what co-op incorporation is. And so um, people are starting to actually formally incorporate themselves as co-ops because they saw how well it was working both when they were enslaved and during the turmoil period. Um, the other thing to remember, it's not exactly a time of war, but if we think of the entire enslavement period as war against blacks, the um, Underground Railroad, this is something that Du Bois taught me from one of his uh, writings, the Underground Railroad was really a form of a cooperative, an interregional cooperative. Because if you think about what it did, right, it wasn't just a system of scouts, people who could help lead people north, but it was also a system of financial support, right? You had mm -hmm. people with wagons who could hide you and take you from one place to another. You had people who had houses with uh, basements where they could hide you. They had food. You know, people got fed. 
people got taken in, in boats. So it was actually an economic cooperative system as well as a social uh, movement transportation system. So we can also think about co-ops in that sense, all the different ways that people used economic cooperation um, to get to freedom, to survive, to have more control over their ownership, to stop being so dependent on either a white slave owner or a white supply store, that kind of thing. Wow. And people say that blacks don't do co-ops. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really sad. I mean, they're not saying it as much anymore. I almost never hear that anymore. Well, that's because but of it your... is what they told me originally. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons is because of your great work, and you just uh, thank it's, you. It's awesome, and I'm glad you took it on. Um, and I would like to um, see how we can get your book in the hands of much more people. Um, that would be great. Yeah. I um, I'm trying to get. Dr. Barber, Reverend William Barber, oh, yeah. on the show mm -hmm. next week. Oh, great. Trying. We, we, mm -hmm. We've been working on that, and I've been wanting, I've been able to, to shake hands and talk to him in a couple of events, and I want to put your book in his hand. Now, I had I only had one copy, and I put, it, I put that in the hands of the president of Howard. Oh, great. Um, oh, that's nice. Thanks. You're welcome. Well, um, I, we I, should be able to get some other copies. If you could send me a proposal, we might be able to get our publisher to um, just send us some books for those purposes. Okay. I'll, I'll get that to you because that that is a mind-opening book on this, this history. And, you know, I did not like history. That's what is so interesting. <laughs> I hated history. And I love it now when I can see us in it and how it has affected us and what are the kinds of things we can learn from it, whether it's during the depression or the economic downturn that we've just gone through. And yeah. maybe we're going to look at another one here, um, but coming together and working together, sharing. But you also mentioned mutual aid societies, uh, what was going on prior to the Civil War and what were they? So mutual aid societies, I mean, actually most of us know of them in a variety of terms, but it's a, a terminology for a variety of activities, which are that the people who are affected by something come together, pool their resources to find a solution. So the very earliest ones for black people were burial societies. And if you think about it as enslaved people or even as um, poor free people, uh, we come from uh, we, uh, from African traditions of burying your dead properly, and that wasn't happening in the New World. But black people who had any kind of meager amount of money would put in some dues, a penny a month, 10 cents a month, 25 cents a year, into a mutual aid society, a burial society. And that bought them the right to, if any member of their family died, the burial society would go into the pool of money and pay for that person to be properly buried. Um, so those were sort of the first black mutual aid societies. We then had widow and orphan ones. They also even we even had early um, health insurance ones where you paid a little bit of money and it bought you a spot in a hospital or to see a doctor once a month or something like that. Or if you were in the had to be hospitalized. You paid a co-payment every month on top of your regular dues, and then it covered your hospital. Um, for widows and orphans, it gave a stipend for widows and orphans if they lost the breadwinner of their family. So we have a variety of these kinds of programs. And, again, there's a rich history. I kind of just skirted through it just to show that there was that history, and it was kind of a precursor to the formal co-ops that started later. Um, is also for the mutual aid societies, the other piece that's exciting and interesting about that is many of them, probably over 60% of them, were started by and run by women. So this is also the early times where women are working with running organizations, helping each other, and handling money. Um, and so we also have, uh, I know the Caribbeans and recent African immigrants talk about Isusus and other kind of roscas which are, again, rotating loan programs among friends and family where you agree to put in a certain amount every month, and then every month one person in the group gets to take the pot and use it for whatever they need to uh, 
buy a washing machine or to send somebody to college or whatever. But again, it's an informal savings program where everybody helps each other to save, and it's because they're pooling small resources that they're able to have resources that will cover their needs. And these are run democratically by the local people who are involved in them. Often the Asusus have what's called a, a lady banker, which is one of the more esteemed women in the community who kind of holds the money and keeps the records, that kind of thing. How are you spelling Asusus? Uh, it's got a variety of spellings, but I think I spell it E S U E S U S U. Is that okay. right? E. <laughs> I, I had spelled it E S U S I S, trying to do it phonetically. But yeah. I'm going to look it up because it's an informal way of savings, and savings is so critical, and Americans don't do it. That's. At, in right. our culture, we so just... more people do these asusus than we think, because that's another thing. I get people who come up to me all the time and talk about their grandmother and aunt's asusus or whatever. But it is very informal, and of course, sometimes the banks and stuff frown upon it because they don't see how it can be enforced. They think you know people are taking too many risks, right? But they, it... apparently, they really, because of the strong sense of trust and community, they actually are very successful and they're hundreds of hundreds of years old we'll be right back we'll be right back thank you so much jessica welcome back everybody this is vernon oaks and we have dr jessica gordon Nimhard on the phone with us i'm having just a great time talking to her about our history particularly uh the history of african americans through times of war um, but I looked up Isusu, and they did spell it E-S-U-S-U, doctor. Oh, good. <laughs> and um, it looks like out of Nigeria and the Ibu. The Ibu tribe, yeah. uh, from what I understand it, were like the business people in Nigeria. They were, some people say they were the Jews of, of Nigeria, um, but they were really into business and uh, the savings coming out of them. But they also said the Yoruba. The Yoruba also had it, and they call Ajo, A-J-O. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Neat yep. stuff. And then a lot of the Caribbean countries practice it, and a lot of people in North America. I have a colleague who has actually done uh, a, written a book about the women bankers in the Caribbean and uh, Toronto, uh, Carolyn Hossein out of York University. So we're, get, we're learning a lot more about how these things work. But for me, what was fascinating was to see that these really were the precursors to the co-op movement. People were actually learning how to, you know, work democratically, how to pool resources, how to build trust, how to keep trust in those Asusu relationships and the mutual aid. So by the time the U.S. actually recognized co-ops as a business model, even though it still wasn't well-known, we had people who understood how these things worked and could teach other people, and they could start creating the model. Actually, mutual insurance companies developed straight out of mutual aid societies. They're just the formal, incorporated version of a mutual aid society, technically. Um, and, of course, mutual insurance companies are considered co-ops. So is that nationwide? Uh, yes, nationwide would be a modern example, Yeah. The black examples are um, the penny-a-day bank that Maggie Lena Walker started out of one of the fraternities uh, in the late, in the mid-1800s. And there were a couple other early mutual insurance companies out of the black community that were, yeah. They're basically just people who finally formalized their mutual aid society um, when they had the structure to do it in a mutual insurance company. Now, remember, not all insurance companies are mutuals. The mutuals are the ones where the stockholder, the, um, the people who own the claims, who, you know, who pay the premiums and own the claims actually own the company. Other stock companies are for-profits that are owned by individuals. I mean, the other insurance companies are for-profits that are owned by individuals, and they do the insurance for a profit. But the mutuals are the nonprofits where the clients, own the stock and have a right to be on the board and to get the residual profits like a credit union. So you're saying that a lot of these were started and run by women. Yes. And this would have been in the 1800s? 1700s too. Yep. 
In fact, the late 1700s, Baltimore and New York were well known for having hundreds of mutual aid societies, and most of them were women-owned and run. My. So we have this strong history, again, of women being part of this whole collective cooperative economics movement. One of my favorite people, Helena Wilson, who was the international president of the Ladies Auxiliary to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. That's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) It was the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, but they had a ladies' auxiliary. Those were the women of the union, so either the wives of the porters and also the maids, because no one realizes this, but the maids, the black women maids on the trains were also part of the union. But because they were women, they had more of a voice in the ladies' auxiliary. Helena Wilson was actually the president for 35 years of the Ladies Auxiliary. She came out of the Mutual Aid Society movement, and then for 35 years, part of her job in the Ladies Auxiliary was to do co-op education and to get the ladies to form consumer co-ops so that the union could keep all that good union pay recirculating in the black community. So instead of having the unionized porters and maids spend their money outside of the black community, the ladies' auxiliary was teaching them about co-ops, helping them create credit unions and co-op stores, a co-op eye clinic, so that they could spend their money within the black community in a democratic fashion. It's amazing that this was around in the 1700s, and I just I got it when I was 50 or so. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. didn't get well, it in any of the formal education. Yeah, now people don't talk about it. Okay, so now I got a third reason that the people in power don't want co-ops. We we talked about (laughs) they don't want poor people to know, and also the the communism of social uh, status. I think that's one way they put it down. But I have it that white supremacists they don't want women to be in charge. Sure. And so now that would be another right. Yeah, but this has been strong, even though a lot of the leaders are still black men. The doers, the thinkers, the teachers have been the women. And I think you're right, right? We don't, this is a society that is very patriarchal. We don't believe that women should have a lot of power. We don't like women to be in the spotlight. And we, again, because women care about communities and families, right? Mm -hmm. Most women. I mean, obviously not everybody. (laughs) But women, you know, when things are in the hands of women, It's always sort of broader ownership, more concern for community, that kind of thing. And I guess that's also considered a problem for capitalism and for the wealthy. Oh, boy. I have this picture of the Zorro movie where this guy comes back to the U.S. from England or Spain or somewhere, and he gets the barons and the the land barons in a room, and he shows them how they're going to buy California and split it up between Mm. the barons. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they got 10, 12 people around the table, and they're, they have this scheme for we're going to buy California, we're going to split it up, and we're going to get the peasants to work their land, work the field, mm-hmm. and then we'll extract all of the money from yep. them. Uh, and it's and I got I got that picture because that's what it looks like America is, mm-hmm. and not only America, if you uh, throughout the world is that sort of model of okay, the the wealthy will try to keep everybody else down so they can extract more and more and more and more. And right. Why they need it, I don't know. But And the interesting thing about the wealthy is they, in some ways, practice cooperative economics. They don't necessarily share the profits. I mean, they do share the profits among a small group of them, but they do collude on everything, right? They can't actually get as far as they've gotten without collusion, without working together, without, um, what do you call it, fixing prices together, that kind of stuff. So when it helps them and when it helps them keep their power and make more profits, they're fine with it. But the minute it helps other people and it's interpreted or used in a different way, they're against it. Wow. Okay. All right. You're thinking at a whole different level, dear. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, basically everybody uses cooperation. We just call it different things, and some of it is considered legitimate and some of it is considered horrible, depending on whose perspective. Well, in this room, in the Zorro movie, that's what they were doing. They were cooperating yeah, right. to they figure were colluding. out. Yeah. yeah. They had it all planned out. They were using the same strategies and tactics so that each one of them could get their fiefdom. They were exploiting people and running away with the profits, and they were letting a few of the chosen members get it all. 
a form of cooperation. I never thought about yeah, that. Yeah, just, you know, a perverted one. It's the cooperation without the solidarity and the real democracy and the real concern for community. And the one of the, the values I like about co-ops is caring for others. Right. So this whole caring for others is out the game. Why do they care for the 10 or 12 of them? Right, but, uh, but not the rest, right? Right. Uh, so let's let's go to we talked about the Civil War before the Civil War. What about World War One? Where were right. co-ops so like to around? Talk about World War One. I, I actually have to talk about the eighteen eighties. <laughs> okay. So let me do my talk about the eighteen eighties. I'll try to be quick, but that's another era I could probably talk two or three hours about. It's a fascinating era. And again, it's actually another unrecognized war, this time the war of white supremacy and the Ku Klux Klan. So the 1880s are the period after the Reconstruction. For those of you who don't know your history, we have the Civil War. We finally outlaw slavery, and there's a whole set of civil rights laws which allow African-American men to vote and allow African and outlaw slavery um, and allow citizenship for anyone born in the United States, which is important because before that you had to be white to be a citizen. So we get all those gains. We have about a 12-year period where civil rights laws are in effect. Blacks are actually in the government. Blacks are trying to get themselves together, uh, recover from enslavement. Um, and then 1877, we have a change in government. Actually, it's still the Republicans who are supposed to be Lincoln's Republican Party that freed the slaves or whatever, but they're becoming more and more conservative. This particular Republican, Hayes, Haynes, Rutherford Haynes, sells out the North and allies with the South in order to get elected. And what that means is he agrees to turn back all the benefits of the Reconstruction period. And he takes the Northern troops out of the South, which was what was reinforcing all the civil rights laws, and allows the Southern Democratic parties and the Ku Klux Klan to take over all the southern governments and to start terrorizing blacks, undoing all the civil rights laws, etc. So it's another kind of war. By the 1880s, you have very repressive southern governments. You have segregation everywhere. You have the Ku Klux Klan lynching hundreds of people every year. And it's, again, a time of proliferation of black co-ops. But it's also a fascinating period because it's not just the black co-op movement. Mm -hmm. It's the beginning of the U.S. co-op movement because officially the co-op movement has started in Europe, right? Remember 1844 with the Rochdale Pioneers by 1885. Is that when the ICA, International Cooperative Alliance, starts in Europe? Anyway, okay. so co-ops, <laughs> the official forms of co-ops that are coming from Europe are now being adopted in the United States and blacks. And labor unions are uh, adopting them and trying to start worker co-ops, consumer co-ops, etc. So there's actually a lot of progressive activity. The small farmers are trying to ally with farm workers to create unions that are also going to promote co-ops and worker co-ops. Some of the most progressive ones are integrated. And so it's a huge period of connecting civil rights, economic justice, cooperative movement, and labor rights. It's a lost hist another lost history because it's only about 10-year period, mm -hmm. but it's lost because the blacks and the whites were heavily, heavily sabotaged and terrorized. So they all had to go underground and fewer and fewer co-ops um, by the 1990s. Uh, sorry, by the 1890s, fewer and fewer co-ops exist. The Ku Klux Klan has basically taken over. So by the time you get to World War One, you have these very repressive southern societies. You have very segregated northern societies. People, again, are not talking about co-ops because it's too dangerous. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the railroads are refusing to actually move, transport co-op-made products. Oh, my the goodness. banks are refusing loans to co-ops, whether, whether black or white. And the labor movement has totally moved away. By the 1900s, labor movement has moved away from co-ops as a strategy, and they've become segregated because it's too dangerous for them to be integrated. So by the yeah. 1900s, you have this, what we recognize as the bifurcated union movement. It's no longer a black movement. 
But what people don't realize is it started out with the co-op movement and it separated. All right, we, we got to take our final break. <laughs> I'm sorry to cut you off. We'll come right it's back. Okay. It's too <laughs> much history. No, it's great history, though. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WO, and 95.9 FM. Information is power, and that's the reason that the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring this program, to give you the information that Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhart is giving you this morning so you can either start a co-op, find out about what co-ops are in your area, and start working in and participating in co-ops so you can build your own financial and social wealth. We were talking about the 1880s, 1890s, and we're getting ready to get into 1914 when World War I started. Come on back on, <laughs> Dr. Nimhart. Hello? Dr. Nimhart, are you on? Can you hear me? Now I can, yes. Okay, now sorry. Okay. So, yeah, I started with the 1880s and 1890s because it's so fascinating, but also, as I said, I see that as actually another period, time of war, right? White right. supremacist, terrorist war. Um, but also, um, it's the 1880s are actually a similar period to what we're into now, so I also like to talk about it so people can think about the parallels now and how strong the co-op and labor movements became because of all that repression and issues and that it should give us some help in thinking about what to do now. By 1914, the co-op movement is actually kind of small, right? Um, But the black socialist movement has been rising, and the World War I veterans are coming back to the United States after having been in Europe and seeing what a more progressive, liberal, supportive, anti-racist society could look like. So what you get in the late um, 19-teens is you start to get uh, black uh, veterans talking about the need for blacks to kind of pull together. They're really upset because they, they fought for us in the war that was supposed to end all wars, and they came home to worse segregation and lynchings and treated horrible, and they're not going to take it anymore. They also see what a different world could be, so the black socialist movement is growing. We actually have not as many co-ops being practiced, but we have a lot of discussion about co-ops. A. Philip Randolph, who um, in the teens actually ran a black socialist magazine called The Masses. Mm. I think that's what it was called. And his co-editor is... um, George Schuyler, which we'll, who we'll talk about in one second, but A. Philip Randolph, you know, who is our hero from the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters in the right. 30s and 40s, and then the um, March on Washington movement in the 40s and the 60s. Anyway, he writes a beautiful article in 1918 about how co-ops are the way that blacks need to go if we really want economic justice and liberation. Um, and so he's already talking about co-ops back then and how co-ops may be our best strategy. Um, and so that's what's happening. Du Bois in, 18, in 1918 calls a meeting to establish the Negro Cooperative Guild. He get, brings 12 men to the NACP offices to spend a whole day talking about co-ops and how they can start building co-ops in their communities. And one guy from Memphis, Tennessee, goes back and starts a very successful meat grocery co-op. And then in the early 1920s, the um, conservative uh, black uh, business league that Booker T. Washington started starts the CMA, the Colored... Oh, gosh. Forgetting my words. uh, Colored Merchants Association where all the independent black grocery stores create a secondary-level co-op in order to survive the onslaught of the new uh, supermarkets. And so even the conservative black businessmen realize that co-ops are important. 
So you've got these little things, but it's the, the leadership of the black community. It's not so much the grassroots co-op stuff happening mm-hmm. at this period. Mm-hmm. It's more a leadership people talking about how important it is, trying to do the education. Um, Schuyler and Ella Baker in 1930 start the Young Negroes Cooperative League. This is before Schuyler becomes a big conservative, but first he's a black socialist with A. Philip Randolph. Then he creates the Young Negroes Cooperative League with our dear Ella Baker, who no one knew was active in the 30s, but this is what she was doing, co-ops in the 30s, before she even became active in NAACP and SNCC and all that. Um, but this is all from that, you know, if we want to talk about the aftermath of World War I stuff, where the black leadership is really talking about how we need to own this model, we need to learn about it, we need to teach each other, we need to support each other, we need regional supports for co-op development, and we need a whole interlocking national system of black co-ops. That's what they're all talking about in this period, even though we don't get a whole lot of co-ops until the 30s. You know, it's fascinating, and I know we could use two or three hours, four hours, because right. we're <laughs> not going to be able to get it. to the Depression, the <laughs> Recession, World War Two. Right. No, we won't get there. So I would really like to, you mentioned something earlier that the reason I like history now is sort of like, what can we learn from history that we can apply today? And you right. mentioned that the 1880s was similar to what we're experiencing today. So can you do that parallel walk to us to see what we can learn from that to apply today? Sure. So if you think about where we are today, right, the aftermath of a black president, some people were trying to say we were in a post-racial society, which we really weren't, but they were thinking that optimistically. Um, You know, the the economy hasn't done that great, but it's had its ups and downs. Um, But now we're really into a pre-fascist era, right, and the rise of... uh, white supremacy again and the rise of racial terrorism again, especially against immigrants, but it's also still against blacks. Um, We came out of the Great Recession, so we also had challenges where people could see that the current economic system really isn't working for most people, and so we're more willing to try new things. So even though we don't have quite as strong the coalitions and alliances between groups are not quite as strong yet, I think we could be building back to that kind of strength and where people are much more willing to try and to engage in cooperative ownership and other economic justice and alternative strategies because they see what's not working, and they have to combat these onslaughts, right? The more the federal government uh, moves away from supporting us in all the ways that it used to and should support us, right, the more we're going to have to do for ourselves. We already do see a movement um, at the local municipal level. We have at least 12 cities that are actually supporting worker co-ops as a strategy to alleviate poverty. Um, You know, New York, Madison, uh, Madison, Madison, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, right, even D.C. is we're trying to do some stuff. Anyway, there's about 12 cities that are actually putting municipal money, Cleveland, uh, into this strategy. So we see there's this local, at least the local Uh, what do you call it, empowerment strategy is bubbling up during these times. And so I think it's going to be a time, especially those of us who can see see where we could go with it, I think it's a time that more can happen, just like in the 1880s. Um, We also could learn the lessons, right? One of the lessons of the 1880s, because it was so repressive, was how important it was for community to support each other and communities to support the co-ops that get created. And so we need to also keep an eye on that prize, right, how important it is to keep talking about this stuff, to keep reigning in community, to do that community organizing and the information exchanges that will make sure that communities understand what these co-ops are, why they need to stay, and why they need to support them. Wow. A mouthful or two or three. Now, (laughs) because we're running out of time, what else are you working on? Well, the next frontier is... uh, Prison and returning citizens, and that's where I'm. That's where I'm putting a lot of my effort in now. I'm working with groups that are looking at incarcerated worker co-ops in the prisons, and worker co-ops for uh, newly returning citizens, and trying to figure out what that looks like, how we can do it legally, what the education would look like, um, what supports we need, and what models we have. Well, can you speak of? I know the model is it in Italy. They have a bakery. 
Yes, in Italy, you know, and I don't actually know the Italian model as well as the Puerto Rican model because the Puerto Rican model is actually one of the few where the uh, prisoners themselves own and control their co-op almost totally. The Italian model is a great model for um, state and local supports and the, uh, what do you call it, a coalition between social workers and the people who are helping uh, and the prisoners themselves. So, yes, one of the great models in uh, Italy is you've got a, a co-op that actually has the chefs and some of the other employees of the restaurant who are prisoners. So they sleep in the prison, but they spend their day working in the, um, in the restaurant. And actually one of the chefs, one of the top chefs in Italy is an incarcerated uh, chef in one of those restaurants. They also have some other programs, uh, I think landscaping and some other things. And it's kind of, it's what we uh, in Canada and the U.S. kind of call uh, solidarity co-ops or hybrid co-ops, mm -hmm. where they're owned not just by the workers, but the stakeholders or in Italy, a lot of these co-ops are owned by the social workers or the support system in addition to the workers themselves. So that's a great model, but I do, I guess we have a little bit of time. The Puerto Rican model is the one I've been studying because that one's really fascinating. They won, they changed Puerto Rican co-op law so that you could be incarcerated and still be on the board of directors of a co-op, and in mm -hmm. fact, your whole board could be wholly owned by incarcerated workers. What kind of business and is it? And we only have one, a the main one, the one that's 12 years old, is uh, artwork. So they make and sell artwork, and they have a lot a strong support from the co-op movement in Puerto Rico. So a lot of the places where they sell their artwork are through the co-op meetings and other co-ops around Puerto Rico. We only have they about own their co-op totally. There's a women's co-op that's doing bakery. There's another solar co-op that's developing. You know, we've got to go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We've got to go because I enjoyed it so much. Jessica, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you oh, for, your, for your work me. and thanks for sharing it. We just got to keep this information going. Everybody out there, thank you for listening today. You can go to everything.coop and hear our programs. We'll see you next Thursday. Have a great cooperative week. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, 95.9 FM.